Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. And today we're talking about Inscription, developed by Daniel Mullins Games and published by Devolver Digital. The game was released for Windows in 2021. Uh, and I know he said Daniel Mullins Games, but it's really just Daniel Mullins, right? He's the guy who made this game. <laughs> uh, that's very true. And certainly has his uh, kind of signature all over it. Like uh, Daniel Mullins also came up with Pony Island, which we did an early unrecorded book club on back in the day. Um, yeah. And he was kind of famous for kind of messing with the player, playing around with the conventions of games in general and having fun with that. Yeah, so we played Pony Island. He had another game called The Hex, which I have not played and has done countless Game Jam games. Mm -hmm. Um, This game actually came from a Game Jam game called Sacrifices Must Be Made. That was the theme of the Ludum Dare jam that he was participating in, and it became the foundational mechanic for the collectible card game that forms the basis of the gameplay mechanics. Yeah, and uh, honestly, it's really cool. You know, you and I, Josh, have played a few roguelike deck builders. Uh, I would say this is definitely the most unique among them that I have played. And um, I didn't say it right up top, but we are going to be talking spoilers. Um, And this is a game that is very susceptible to them. Uh, (laughs) So, and uh, this also is a game that for me goes highly recommended uh, to almost anyone. So if you have any thoughts of playing this game, go play it, come back, you know, dozen hours in, you will not regret it. Yeah, there are some games like, say, SimCity, where you can talk about the mechanics and not spoil any of the experience for anybody. But things like this, it's a, um, it's a game that's easier to spoil. Yeah, for sure. Um, and we'll get into why that is very shortly. So if you haven't played, go play it. We'll still be here when you get back. Yep, consider yourself warned. Um, (laughs) Moving on, uh, I think one thing that's important to note about Daniel Mullins and his games is that they are usually extremely meta. You know, he likes to break the fourth wall. He likes to play with player expectation. Um, This game in particular even had an ARG associated with it, um, Mm -hmm. which actually had like hundreds of people jump into and start fooling around on discord with really quickly so that sounds like it was a pretty cool experience for him oh i imagine so um one quick example of how he plays around with those expectations is you boot up the game inscription and you're at the main (laughs) menu there's no new game it's like um errored out it's blurred out you can't access it you have to go to continue right from the get-go yeah, I love that. It reminded me of like when you rented a game or a cartridge, like a 64 cartridge or something from Blockbuster back in the day, hmm. and there was someone's save file already there, and you were like, ooh, do I jump into that and see what that's all about? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, usually that resulted in mass confusion, but uh, it was also kind of cool. Um, I remember doing that quite a bit. That's something that the uh, younger generations than us will not really have that experience of stumbling across a stranger's save. Yeah, no, uh, you don't really get that in the the disc era or especially now in the digital era. That'd be cool if you did, though. (laughs) (laughs) Like uh, maybe someone could just like offer up their save as public domain and be like, hey, if you want to see what like a a random save looks like, here it is. Download this save. I wonder why they haven't done that um, yet. 
like Dwarf Fortress and some of these other, like RimWorld, some of these other city builders do legacy games where you get the game for a year and then you pass the save on to someone else. Hmm. Yeah, I remember you telling me about that when we talked about um, Dwarf Fortress. And I like that idea. It's sort of like uh, like the way to continue a story and sort of have a part in it. And, you know, you tell your own chapter and then pass it on. I like that. Yeah, a way to kind of be part of a community playing a game. But that's not what you're doing here. Uh, we're very much getting an, an, an authored experience. And uh, authored it is in such an awesome way. I think everything about this game just feels so like handmade and intentional. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, love, I love that about it. You know, everything from like the tactile feel to the sound design is just perfect for what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels like there weren't necessarily mechanics in here because they were expected to be in here as part of the genre but a lot of those things were acknowledged or subverted or played around with and how things went around absolutely agree and like especially having played some of mullen's earlier games you could tell this is sort of like him putting it all together like thinking back to pony island and like this seems to have just come out so fully formed compared to uh, you know his other project that I've played given that was a long time ago but this this really has a level of like polish and like despite how complex it is it seems to have worked surprisingly well in the hands which is mm-hmm. rare yeah I'd agree with that like um I remember that we ended up not being huge fans of Pony Island like we liked the game but we felt like it um didn't come together this game definitely came together and Boy, how did it do that? Yeah, yeah, it sure did. But maybe we should we should set it up since we'll be talking about sort of the through line mechanics here very shortly. But uh, basically, the idea behind Inscription is you wake up in a dark cabin with a pair of creepy glowing eyes in front of you, and you start to play a card game. Of course, um, you know you you guys have all been camping before. You know what it's like. You get bored, you pull out a deck of cards. <laughs> or, you know, you get bored, you pass out, and then wake up as a prisoner to someone in a cabin. <laughs> um, but no, there's very, like, horror and, like, creepypasta influences here to me. Um, like, Definitely. Uh, like, the creepypasta, we'll, we'll get to that later, I think. Yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, immediately you you wake up as as you said, Josh. There's a cold open. New game is disabled. You continue, and you're just sitting in front of this uh, unknown entity with glowing eyes who's beckoning you to um, play a game of cards. And he sort of looks like a PS2 horror game. Like he's, you know, it's like sort of low poly but still 3D. And mm-hmm. the the interesting thing to me is immediately he asks you to get up from the table you're sitting at so you're not just playing cards you're also navigating a 3d space walking around um i think the way i initially sort of thought of this initial part of the game was it's a roguelike deck builder wrapped in a escape room that's very much how i thought about it there's small puzzles that are located around the room for you to solve. Some of them you can solve right away. Other ones you have to wait till you get to know the game a little more. Uh, he had that cool little lockbox that it was um, a card battle, like an example of a card battle where you're supposed to get a certain amount of damage done uh, by moving monsters up and down on the battlefield. Um, so 
because of the special abilities the monsters had that you wouldn't know right away how those played out mechanically. Uh, it wasn't something you could unlock until you knew a little bit more about how the game worked. Yeah, and the game does this really neat thing where it sort of teaches you different mechanics and um, different ways that the cards that you're wielding can operate in battle over the course of the first few runs that you do. And unless you come in with just an extravagant amount of knowledge about collectible card games and card battlers, then you're probably going to need those first few runs to get your legs under you and, and understand that stuff. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about those card battles. Uh, this playing field is, uh, there's four columns with your cards on one side and the opponent's cards on the other side. Um, but farther beyond the opponent's back line is like the um, reinforcements line. So you can see what's coming up on the turn after yours. This is kind of a small numbers game too, where the cards at, at their most basic, they have an attack value and a health value. And during when they attack, they take that attack damaged against the opposing card or against the opposed uh, the opponent in general and then if you take do enough damage to your opponent um compared to the damage they do to you uh then you win the match yeah and i like the way that this is shown um in game is it's uh, a scale like the scales of justice i guess think of it that way and mm -hmm. you really only need to outbalance your opponent by five points of damage so to speak and you win right so if you do five right off the bat they don't get a rebuttal and you win um mm -hmm. but and that's an interesting thing too it's not like you have five health right um that because there's been times where i came back from a deficit i was like one point of damage away from losing but then i'd be able to do enough and then um my like the the amount of damage i did to him equaled out and then overpower the damage he was doing to me it wasn't you, like we just had five health and that was it yeah i really like that you have effectively infinite health as long as you're on even footing in terms of what you're outputting damage wise yeah exactly yeah. It's really it's an, it's a neat give and take, and really what it is is like getting an advantage over your opponent and then twisting the knife. Um, hmm. But I, I think the really interesting thing about this first uh, phase and mechanics that they bring forth is you have two decks, right? You don't just have your deck; you have the deck that you're drawing in terms of your attack cards, but then you also have a deck of just squirrels. That's right, and you use these squirrels well. Um, they introduce this mechanic right away, and I think it sets the tone wonderfully for the game. Uh, at the very at first, you play a squirrel card, and the squirrel card it doesn't do anything as he's taking you through the kind of card pl playing tutorial. Um, but besides these numbers, you see the attack and the health. There's also these drops of blood up by the top of the card's name. Uh, some cards have one drop, some cards have two, some like the squirrels don't have any. Um, but to play these cards that have the drops of blood, you have to sacrifice that many cards from your side of the battlefield in order to play the more powerful card. Yeah, and I love the way that they implement this in terms of, like, you need to make a conscious choice to sacrifice cards. Like, if you choose a card that requires a blood sacrifice, you have to hover over the cards you want to sacrifice, and they start to, like, shudder and shake. And some of them will talk to you and say, no, not me, choose anything but me, you know? Like, they beg for their lives, so to speak. It's very uh, horror-esque, and it really, oh, like, yeah. appeals to the player. Well, again, going along, too, with the... Uh... The playing with genre expectations sort of things, those talking cards, like um, 
when you first pick up the stout, which is the first talk, talking card you get, um, you pick him up and you're looking at him, and his text changes from saying stout to saying, hey, just play along, as he starts mumbling at you. And you're like, oh, this is unexpected. I wasn't expecting like a Harry Potter moving photograph here or anything. I, it was, <laughs> you thought you were just playing cards, and now this one, you know, is saying, don't sacrifice me. Yeah, I uh, here's a funny, interesting thing. I was on the inscription website right before we started, and if you go to the, the notepad on that site, you get a picture of the stout. Um, who turns out to be an important character, but we'll get to that later. But he says, um, we can't talk here. Uh, go by the game and, and we'll talk there. It's it's safer or something along those lines. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's very important that these are like entities that you're going to be dealing with. You know, there's uh, four main ones. There's um, characters. You know, these yeah. cards are characters or some of them at least. Some of them at least, yeah. And that's really cool. Um, they're sort of, as you said, Josh, already starting to sort of mix the genres and defy the expectations that you would have from something like a Slate Aspire. Um, mm-hmm. Which another thing this first area does is it it borrows from things like that um, in having sort of like an overworld map that you're navigating. You get to make a choice of the path you go down. Sometimes you'll get a bonus, which will allow you to add, say, like a sigil to your card, which is uh, a mechanical advantage that you know allows it to do something special. Like, uh, like it can be a flying card, or it could be sacrificed multiple times, mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah, or, of course, uh, the, another option is that you could find a totem which imbues all of a certain type of your cards with a specific sigil so say you find a squirrel sigil and you bestow it with the unlimited sacrifice mechanic (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah that there were there were fun ways to kind of kind of break the game in the best roguelike way you'd get these totems from the woodcarver one of the characters you can meet along the way um and the head of the totem you'd get um it would be like an ant or a squirrel or a, a wolf it would be a different type of card or class of cards um and then the bottom part would be a sigil or a special power to get it could be a flying thing or it could be um like unlimited sacrifices it sounds like you got that with a squirrel yeah. <laughs> and to that point, basically the the card mechanics in this game kind of beg to be broken. Like <laughs> y- you can create wildly un- unbalanced decks with the that sacrifice mechanics and the totem and this is okay. Like undying squirrels are like kind of what I think Daniel's getting you to go for here. Like this is not a game that's supposed to be perfectly balanced. The mechanics mm-hmm. here are subservient to the narrative. Absolutely. Uh, I'm, one of my favorite ways to break it was um, I got a totem. It was insects would create a new insect when they died. Mm-hmm. So I just had like <laughs> swarms of bees going after everybody. You couldn't stop them. Yeah, it, it's really great how you can like, and there's so many different ways to do it. Like everyone will have a new way where like finally they stumble on a combination that just like cracks the game's mechanics wide open. Um mm-hmm. It's clear to me once we get to the neg- the meta narrative portion of this why inscription the card game never really caught on, um, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, you know during the whole first portion of this game we are playing mostly with like a woodland themed deck. You know you got various animals, um, more on the the variety you get here later, but um, 
another interesting thing is that, as we mentioned earlier, you will not succeed the first time. You know, you'll find one of these game-breaking combinations eventually and get your first victory, quote-unquote. But until then, uh, they'll bring in another horror element, which is when you lose, your game master will take you out back into the back room, and he will, quote-unquote, take your picture, which uh, in in extremely delightfully creepy thing... Uh, captures you into a card and you're mm-hmm. forced to play as a card in the game from there on out or rather the next player who comes around and starts at the beginning um yeah. who you're playing as like the computer player um but you find your old card in there and you're like oh this was this used to be me and, and in a stroke of genius you also find other steam friends cards in there too <laughs> <laughs> so mm-hmm. I really like the way this played with that. Like there are a couple times where this game reaches out into the broader network of game players, be it your friends or otherwise. And every time it's like a stroke of genius, you know, you see a card from one of your friends, um, you see a card from uh, a stranger and you're like, Oh, they gave me a really good card or wow. They really did shitty on that run or, or whatever. And I think, <laughs> I, th- I think this was really cool because on death, what happens is you get to choose from the deck that you've amassed over time. Um, based on a few different choices, like what the cost will be, and then what the power will be, and then what the health will be. So mm-hmm. you, if you find a, a way to get a combination of cards with low cost and high attack and health, then all of a sudden you've created like this uber card. And the more of these that you get into your deck, aka the more deaths you accrue, the more likely it is that you're going to have a good deck. Mm-hmm. Up until the point where these cards are turned against you. yeah yeah it's it's really interesting because there there is um sort of a point where you're going to have to come back and do that but we are uh we haven't talked yet about one of the sort of hallmarks of this roguelike uh deck builder that the game master is putting you through and that's the bosses Oh, yeah. I love the bosses. Like, the creepy pair of eyes you were playing against would put out a new mask, and it would be this, you know, really creepy, like a creepy prospector or a creepy fisherman, um, which, you know, they don't sound that creepy, but the atmosphere that was provided um, for the card games, it was, you know, it really set the stage for these battles. They are absolutely creepy, and I want to take this point in time specifically to call out the sound design and the composition and soundtrack in this game, because the sound that accompanies these bosses, and of course your Game Master in general, is just outstanding. Like, the sound the Game Master makes when he talks is bone-chilling. And then Mm -hmm. when they bring a boss in, uh, as you said, the whole aesthetic changes, Um, a creepy soundtrack that coordinates exactly with the boss at hand um, comes into play so for like the um, angler it's like uh, fishing bells and water sloshing around for the uh, trapper there's sound of like skin ripping and scissors sort of cutting through like ride or something like that Mm-hmm. And the prospector yeah. has a clanging, like sort of metallic sound. It's it's really well done. And I want to just name the composer real quick: Jonas and Zell, who absolutely knocked it out of the park with this game. Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, um, these characters had so much personality, such such a good horror vibe. I mean, 
when I when I'm talking about it now, I'm saying like, oh, it's a scary prospector. It doesn't sound scary, but they made it scary. Yeah, I was gonna say it doesn't sound scary, but you can make anything scary if you do it right. Um, you don't think a game like po- or with the name Pony Island could be scary too? But that game also had its scary moments. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's one of Daniel Mullen's tricks, right? Is he will take something that doesn't sound scary, like um, a roguelike deck builder set in a forest, and turn it into a horror story. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, it's all about like the atmosphere and the mood that he's developing throughout the course of what he's putting on the screen for you, and it really works. Um, I I just I, I think the bosses are probably the best, the, my favorite part of the first act because every time I saw one, I didn't know what I was going to expect, and every single one of these bosses does not play fair. Like they will <laughs> surprise you at every turn, and that's why I think it's great that like eventually you create these unbalanced decks and turn the table because they absolutely don't play fair either (laughs) oh absolutely yeah they all have a special move you gotta learn how to anticipate and plan for and figure out um and once you know once you know them better then it works but it's uh they're great bosses though because they have that twist but it feels unfair at first because they are they're breaking the rules of the game as you have come to know them but they're not unbeatable either yeah and this is one of the few games where i feel like when it breaks its own rules i'm like thrilled and not disappointed usually that's like something that i will call out in a game as something i don't like and i feel like sort of short shifted by you know but when this game subverts its own rules for whatever reason, they're doing it in a way that makes me feel like surprised and delighted. Maybe it's because of the fact that this is a roguelike and I know I'm supposed to have multiple runs at this thing. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's because they're continuing to give me a new taste of extra mechanics and things like that as I continue to fail. But it works, you know? Yeah, I definitely think the roguelike structure of it, where you learn new things as you repeat and you can find new items, new knowledge, that helps out with the having to do multiple deaths and everything. I think another thing that might help out with that, that you don't feel cheated about it, is that kind of horror theme they got going. Like, Mm. you're fighting out against the creepy prospector, and he breaks the rules. And it just adds to that feeling of like, oh no, I'm going to die. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's like, uh, it works with the atmosphere as well as with the mechanics no, that that's a really that's a really good point. Like it, it's in service of it, it's in service of the story and the narrative that the game is going for. And I think that's like the whole point of this whole first act. It's like, what if we did a a roguelike deck builder, but it wasn't intensely focused on ensuring that it was a balanced experience that you could have run over run with, you know, thousands mm-hmm. of times and be satisfied. But if it was leading you down a path to a story. And I don't know how this was done in, in such a good way. And I'm sure there's like edge cases where this didn't work for people, but I just felt like it was continually unfolding new things to me on every run, uh, both within the game and outside in the cabin. You know, I was able to sort of advance as I needed to, to get the next layer of story. And I never felt like I like stalled out, right? Even though it was so open-ended and it didn't really feel like it was leading you by the nose at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I liked exploring the cabin. You know, you'd find a locked door or a locked safe and you'd try to figure out how to get around that. Um, One thing, one of my little favorite touches that the game had 
were was the item system and how that played into the narrative too. Like you'd have uh you'd be able to take up to three items into battle that you could accumulate along your journey in the roguelike map. Uh things like an emergency squirrel where you could break the bottle open and you get a free squirrel to play and then sacrifice to get your more powerful creatures out. Um one of the early items you get is a pair of pliers and he's like here you can use this to when you um when you need a little more health or when to Damage, tip the scales yeah. a little more you can use this to tip the scales so i naively assumed that you would just put the pliers on the scale and give some <laughs> weight there but when you use the pliers for the first time it turns out what you do is you reach into your mouth with them and pull out a tooth which you use to tip the scales a little bit yeah that was like i mean content warning for people with dental history that is <laughs> less than perfect because this is horrifying um mm -hmm. it gets more macabre from there but yeah you can uh it's worth mentioning that up until this point you are basically weighting down the scales on either side with teeth um that is sort of the currency that damages is dealt with in this game and we haven't mm -hmm. we haven't dealt uh, delved deeply into the mechanics, but there's all kinds of different tokens you can accrue, or rather, there's two different types of ways to get people on the board to this point. There's death tokens, which is when your characters die, and there's blood, which is from sacrifices. So there's all kinds of sort of blood, sacrifice, death, weighing down the scales with teeth. Like it's dark, <laughs> definitely <laughs> you know? very thematic, and and with those items too. Um, after you use those pliers. An item that you get later on in the game is a dagger when you solve one of the puzzle escape rooms. And mm -hmm. I will tell you, I think I waited four or five runs before I actually used it because I'm like, uh, uh, what is it going to do? <laughs> this doesn't look good. <laughs> yep. No. And of course, in uh, the denouement of horrific stuff, it uh, immediately takes the dagger, plunges it into the player character's eye fries out their eye and places that on the scale. Um, and then you can only see half the battlefield after that. However, after the battle, once you've won, you get to replace it with a replacement eye. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> and in a brilliant twist, they use that as a, an intro for a new type of puzzle. If you identify the correct eye, the magic eye, you can see some hints and secrets throughout the cabin that will help you unlock some additional um, content and you know areas and places to go. I think if you're playing the game on the normal path that is necessary to solve, like, the clock puzzle, because otherwise you just got to go through all the different um, revolutions of the clock until you find the correct combination. That magic eye you get allows you to get the third ch uh, talking card critter, the shaggy wolf. Right. Yeah, the, uh, or wait, it's the stunted wolf. Yeah. Um, Stun okay. Yeah, yeah, and... um that that is really cool you know we, we haven't mentioned it to to date but you accumulate sort of three main cards in this phase that are talking to you you get um as we've said the stoat who you know is sort of your first intro character it gives you sort of a tutorial helps you out a little bit and then a stink bug who's very macabre and also sort of you know urging you onward and then finally the stunted wolf and, you know, more on these three characters later, but they have more significance as the game continues. Even inside the cabin escape room, once you get the wolf, uh, he comes up with a plot to turn the tables on your captor. Yes. So it's it's very clear that 
they are familiar with your game master, the mysterious pair of eyes behind the mask that you are, you know, in opposition to throughout the course of this portion of the game. And uh, finally, you're, you're, if you're able to take down all three of the bosses that we mentioned, um, you are able to confront that character, um, the, the pair of eyes, the game master. And that is a fantastic boss battle. <laughs> it, it is a really good one, yeah. There's um, because he goes through all the three different bosses you faced before, and then has his own thing going on too. At that point, uh, he lures you to the top of the the mountain, so to speak, in his game world, and then he decides, um, the moon is so you know big and beautiful tonight. I'm going to make you fight the moon, <laughs> and he brings <laughs> the moon onto the battlefield, which is. You know, a gigantic four-wide character with 40 HP, which, as we talked about, this is a small numbers game. You're not going to have a character on your side of the board with more than, like, four or five HP, probably. Um, but there, I don't know about you, but I circumvented this in a very simple way. Uh, I had the stink bug in my party, and she lowers attack by one, and the moon mm-hmm. starts with one attack. So what did I do? Starts with uh, one attack yeah, <laughs> that gets dealt to everybody. So yeah, I had the stink bug, which did the same thing. Yep. I think that's kind of the, the key to that one. Um, so basically, the moon is unable to damage you. You know, as long as you have some something that's able to output some damage, you will eventually win. And otherwise, it's, it's pretty much impossible because it sort of slowly rolls into having higher and higher damage um, based on its ability to kill and absorb your, your characters. Hmm. But... Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, you were talking about some fun ways to break the game. Uh, there's a card out there called Orboros uh, that starts off as 1-1, but also has a um, has a mechanic where that when he gets sacrificed, he permanently gains 1-1 uh, attack and 1 health and becomes a 2-2 creature and then 3-3 and so on and so forth. And there's a way to break the game where you... Um, sacrifice him and then you sacrifice a black goat that also comes back after you sacrifice it and you just go back and forth and you can get this uh you can get this little lizard oberos up to whatever attack and health you want i love that um and i think there's another one where when a there's a sigil that when a character dies they're automatically played again or something like that (laughs) i i had like a a bear which is a, usually a very high-cost creature that whenever someone on the field died, it was automatically played. So I would just throw something on the field to sacrifice, and then whenever it got killed, my most powerful card would automatically be played. <laughs> nice. nice. Yeah, yeah, I really like this game. It's like, we don't need to be balanced. We need to be fun. Yeah, and it, it really did let you just sort of, like, say screw you to the, the cheating, conniving game master, and it, it felt really great. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, even the stout, uh, when you first meet him, he's like, yeah, this guy cheats all the time. (laughs) Yep. But, uh, hey, it's acknowledged, uh, and Mm -hmm. we accounted for it. So we're going to uh, get our own advantage, get one over on this guy. That's right. That's right. So after the plot with a stunted wolf where you find some extra film, you manage to steal the camera from the creepy pair of eyes uh, that he the camera he uses to make you into a card, and you 
make him into a card. You turn the tables. Um, and then you have the run of the cabin afterwards, and you find the new game icon hidden behind a locked door. That's right. So you finally are able to best your captor, and uh, as a result, you get to start a new game. Uh, and I love this. Like, it basically um, immediately boots you well it doesn't immediately boot you into a new game because uh what happens first is you learn a little bit about the overarching meta narrative with mm-hmm. luke carter <laughs> luke carter is a um youtuber or streamer or someone who focuses on board games and collectible card games uh the first video you see of him his story being presented in short video clips. The first video you see of him is of him doing an unwrapping of a made-up card game. Yeah, that's right. So he is a. This is a, worth mentioning. This is um, like real, actual video, uh, full motion yes. video. And uh, Luke Carter is played by Kevin Saxby, who is a actor in the Vancouver area, and. It's really fun. You get sort of this little interface with a few different videos of him. And the end game of this is he finds uh, this mysterious uh, card with a set of coordinates on it, which leads him to a floppy disk containing the video game version of Inscription, a Baroque card game that he had found some packs of at a garage sale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is where I think the creepy pasta influences really come in. Like, um, if you guys haven't heard of creepy pasta before, it's kind of a genre of horror tell of horror storytelling um, that involves things like a cursed video game uh, cartridge that kills you if you uh, don't beat it by the end of the day, or something like that. And so, Luke. Luke Carter finds the inscription disc. Yeah, I guess like a famous uh, creepypasta is like Google Pokemon Black before Pokemon Black was actually a Pokemon video game. But uh, (laughs) back in the day, there was like this creepy haunted version of Pokemon called Pokemon Black that was a popular creepypasta. But um, yeah, to your point, Josh... um, you know, you are basically now, as I understand it, like the game is sort of you playing from Luke's perspective, or maybe it isn't. It's kind of hard to tell. <laughs> no, I think you're playing. You're supposed to be playing from Luke's perspective because you hear his voice when you start up a game for the first time, and then you'll hear that again in some of the videos going on, and some of the things that happen in the game, like whenever uh, the master of the first uh, act game cheats he says like oh what the hell (laughs) stuff like that (laughs) um so yeah um and i think it's worth mentioning at this point that they do give your your antagonist a name it is leshy uh he Mm -hmm. is the scribe of the woodlands as, as i understand it and um i think it's time that we talk about like the second act and compare it to the first because once you do beat him and you get through this sort of meta narrative section where you learn about luke carter and his place in the world um you start the game over but it's not the same game you've been playing it is a 16-bit or 8-bit or you know early 90s-esque rpg Mm -hmm. collectible card game rpg Uh, So it's all pixel art, very retro game feel to it, as opposed to this kind of um, 3D 
PS1, PS2 style sort of thing. Probably PS2. Definitely more polygons in than, than the first PlayStation. Definitely PS2, yeah. Yeah, and and that is like a the, this is the game's first like big surprise. Like basically, it's like oh, I thought that whole like first acting like that was the game. You know that that'll probably take you like upwards of you know four or five hours to do. I don't know. It took me five five ish hours, and then mm-hmm. you kill the moon. Like it seems pretty big. And <laughs> y- you know what this reminds me of is like frog fractions. You know, like surprises nested game within game. You know it. it like sort of just never stops. Hang on. Don't don't you spoil frog fa- fractions for me. I haven't done it yet. <laughs> okay. I'll leave that there. I'm sure you're aware that that is what that game is, but yes, I'll just leave it there. <laughs> no, for sure. I mean, I feel like Act 1 was so good and so coherent that it easily could have been a game on its own. So I feel like everything given to me after Act 1 was kind of like bonus. Yeah, and you get so much more. Like, Act 2 really is a completely different game. And for some people, like, that Act 2 game will resonate more than the Act 1 game. Because, Mm -hmm. for one, like, there are more mechanics in Act 2. It turns out that the game you were playing, uh, the Leshy's sort of collective, or Leshy's roguelike deck builder game, is only one of four different types of decks that were present in the world of Inscription. So you get the other three decks, which are uh, the deck of the robots, headed by C-03, or the Stoat from the first act, the uh, deck of the Death People, the Necromancers, headed by Grimora, the Stinkbug from the first act, and the deck of the Magicians, headed by Magnificus, or the Stunted Wolf from the first act. Each of these decks has a unique mechanic to them. Um, Leshy's deck, the Woodland deck, is very much based around sacrifice. Um, Grimora's deck, she is the stink bug. Uh, She is based around bones. When one of your cards dies, that helps feed your supply for the next cards coming out. And a lot of her cards will, like... They do one attack and then they die right away. Uh, so there's different ways to get that engine going. The robots deck is based off of this battery power stuff. Uh, you get a little more energy each turn, and you can spend that energy to um, recruit new cards onto your deck. And then the wizards is based on these gems. Um, you can have cards that have this gem property on the battlefield. And if you have that property on the battlefield, you can recruit more powerful versions of those uh, cards or gems. Yep. And all of these sort of mirror very you know popular collectible card games. You know, your magics, your um, what's the blizzard one? Um, Hearthstone. Yeah, hearthstones, uh, things of that nature. Like all of these are are mirroring different popular card video game implementations and combining them all into one. But the the magic here, uh, which can be confusing, but also kind of works, but can be overwhelming, is that you are able to collect from all of them and combine them as you see fit. This is very different from the first act, where in the traditional roguelike deck builder, you have the cards you have, and it's like a special ability to be able to remove a card from your deck. Um, That's like a special encounter, whereas another encounter might be adding a card to your deck. In act two, you collect cards, and then you create a deck of 
I think it's like 15 to 30 of them. Yeah. Um, and they can be across different mechanics. There's different mechanics or different cards that cross different mechanics. Like it'll be bones and sacrifice or it'll be magic and robots. Um, but you build a deck that takes advantage of whatever mechanics you got. Yep. Like, uh, if in the previous act you were limited to sort of one theme, now you have access to the full binder, right? So if you're um, thinking about it in terms of, like, <laughs> um, your maybe Pokemon cards or something like that, and you needed to limit yourself to one element, now you've got the whole binder at your disposal, and you can mix and match them as, as, you, uh, <laughs> as you see fit. Um, mm-hmm. I also think it's interesting how they, on the overworld of Act 2, allow you to revisit the cabin that you were in in the first act. You know, Leshy is present. And your whole purpose in Act 2 is to replace one of the four scribes of the four that we just named earlier there. That's the point of the original video game uh, inscription that Luke Carter finds, and you start the new game on eventually, is you're trying to become a new scribe. Um, so... Each of the scribes has their own little themed area, and each of them has three minions that you have to battle before you can fight the boss. And in Leshy's cabin, you have, of course, the prospector and the angler and the trapper, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, who you actually meet in the flesh as opposed to their boss wearing a creepy mask of them. Well, you meet them in the pixels, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And... Each of the other areas is just as well realized, which leads me to think that, like, Daniel Mullins could have chosen any of these four as the starting point for his roguelike deck builder game, but he chose Leshy uh, in the Woodland deck. And I, you know, I really like that aesthetic and I think it worked out really well. But it just goes to show, how, like, how well this whole idea was thought out. There's so much of a possibility space here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it seemed very generous to me, the second act. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so you you go around the second act, it feels a lot more like a, a Pokemon. You know, there's... It basically, hmm. you're, you're visiting four gyms, right? You're bringing your cards to bear. You're trying to defeat the, the gym leader. And then... Um, it's harder than that, though. Uh, I actually struggled a little bit with the second act because uh, I'm not like a a deck builder pro. You know, I'm fine with roguelike deck builders because it limits the possibility space for me. But when mm-hmm. I'm asked to actually design from whole cloth a deck, uh, no thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's the huge difference between the two acts. Like, um, the possibility space is greater, as you say. And a good, a well-designed roguelike deck builder, they'll start you off with something that works pretty much, and then you can only modify that so much along the way. Here you can like you can remove all those cards and add in some other ones instead. Yeah, it's it's a lot easier to screw up c- catastrophically in this act. They do have mm-hmm. an auto design deck button which I made use of and uh once I sort of used that as a basis and then subbed in the cards that I knew I liked and would work and went along with the theme, I figured it out. Um it was kind of nice and sort of instructive at that point because it would basically like put you along the right power or energy curve in terms of the deck type you had, and then you could sort of pick and choose the cards that you liked for your play style. Oh, that's good. I didn't know. I, I didn't use the auto-generate thing myself, but it sounds like it did have some intelligence. I think I didn't use it because I didn't expect it to. <laughs> well, uh, it had as much intelligence as me, at least, which is to say, not much. 
Eventually, uh, you during Act 2, you do visit all of the different scribes, you know, as we mentioned up top, PO3, the robot, Boss, Grimora, the scribe of death, Magnificus, the scribe of magic, and of course, Leshy, our old pal in the cabin. Oh, um, fun fact, Leshy's actually a Scandinavian demon. Yeah, I remember that from The Witcher. Oh, he, <laughs> you, you went through more <laughs> of The Witcher than I did. <laughs> yeah, there was there was a, Lesh, a Leshy type or Leshen or something like that that was referenced in The Witcher, and I recognized that name, and I was like, oh, that's like a wood demon. Yeah, um, basically like an evil demon tree. But yeah, it mm-hmm. was neat. Uh, you know, I like that um, that reference there. So you go through, you defeat all four scribes, and you become, you're supposed to become a new scribe yourself, but then, plot twist, mm. your old friend the Stout betrays you. That's right, the Stout, a.k.a. P-03, who was your, uh, he, he uh, begins to uh, try and do the Great Transcendence, which, as far as I'm aware, means he wants to get the game onto the internet so that he can sort of expand his play space. Um, hmm. and, and what that involves is you enter the third act of this game, which is where P-03 is the game master, and you're now in sort of like a screen-by-screen, souls-like card battler, uh, where if you lose, your corpse appears and you lose all of your money, but you can go and pick it back up, and your basic goal is to get to P-03 defeat him and collaborate with your other three former scribes to put an end to his plot yeah i think the way i understood the plot of this is that p03 needed you to go through and defeat all of the bosses again in order to beat the game but Doing so would allow him to get the game out on the internet, uh, both in terms of like stuff that would happen with the game, but also in terms of like along the way he tricks you into like taking screenshots of mm-hmm. the game and um, doing a little bit of writing or something like that. And at the end, he's like, "Ha! I tricked you into making a Steam page for this game." <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Like you're, as you said, you're doing all of the components of a Steam store page. I love it. And not only that, but uh, during the the boss fights in this area, um, you, they do all of these really fantastic uh, metatextual twists, right? Like in the part where he's allowing, or he's trying to get the files to upload, you have to allow him access to your hard drive, and you can use the files on your actual PC against him. Um, apparently, in the first iteration of this game, they would actually delete those files when you use them. But uh, <laughs> but uh, Devolver Digital made them not do that. Uh, worth, <laughs> worth mentioning, Daniel Mullins had some support uh, being published by Devolver Digital, which, uh, you know, well-known publisher, probably for the best that he heeded their advice on that one. <laughs> I uh, never actually lost my hostage files, but I, you know, with a game from Daniel Mullins, you never know if he actually <laughs> will delete them or not. It yeah, turns out no, he would have earlier. He would have, but, uh, you know, publishers stopped him from doing that. So thanks, Devolver. Um, I actually, they asked you to find, like, the biggest file you can to do damage. So I was like, all right, well, I have, like, 
raw files of our old podcast recordings that are like a gigabyte. Um, <laughs> so we would have lost some uh, raw um, pixelated playgrounds footage if it weren't for uh, Devolver Digital. <laughs> oh, man. Can't have that. No, definitely not. <laughs> So eventually, you also uh, give him access to the internet in a great boss fight where you are able to not only send but receive cards that you create in uh, as a part of the battle. Um, this is a really neat chapter for sort of meta-narrative mechanics, I guess is a good way to put it. Yeah, there's definitely... Um, because the character in the game, P03, yeah, P03, P03 is trying to make a steam page for this game um it's like he's he's motivated to try to do all these things on your computer which is typically not a thing you perceive video game characters of as being aware of so it made for some nice moments when um at the end he reveals his like web of plans and how everything came together yeah, it, it definitely, it starts off a little slow and like sort of the initial run up and before you get to your first boss, it started to drag a little for me. But all in all, like this whole game is fairly breezy and the interesting things that it does by the end make it well worth the time investment. Daniel Mullen's just in this game, everything that he did, unlike the gimmicks that maybe he's used in his past games, was all in service of, like, a greater narrative. Like, nothing here seems to have been for nothing, you know? No, I hear what you're saying, and I think the plot of Act 3 was good, um, but I feel like the structure of it was definitely dragging along. Like, if you look from, like, Act 1 was amazing. I, I loved Act 1 for sure. Um, Act 2 expanded on that. Like, you go from roguelike deck builder to just plain deck builder, and you get these new mechanics thrown in. Act 3 felt like... It felt like he chose the wrong structure for that. Like, if he tried to do more of a roguelike thing for that instead, like an echo of Act 1 instead of an Act 2 echo... I could see that going over a lot better. Yeah, he tried to do both because there was also the aspect of Act 3 where he had the the escape room, right? Like you were navigating the factory uh, mm -hmm. when you're away from the table in Act 3. So it felt like he was trying to combine the best of both, but it also just sort of muddled both a little bit. Um that's not to say like Act 3 is bad or anything. And I think that, like I said, the thing that it brings to the table in terms of the meta mechanics and reaching out into the real world breaking the fourth wall like saved it for me but if that wasn't there it would have been pretty dull when you play a game like this there's a lot of variety thrown at you and that's a great thing that a developer can deliver that much variety to you um but it makes you question the choices sometimes especially when you've seen the same developer in the same game um do much better than what i thought the the uh, act three felt like a little more of a grind to me. I agree. And I think like, you know, I've said this the whole time we've been talking about this act, but the bosses were great. 
and I think maybe if it would have just slimmed down on like the chaff in between, it would have mm-hmm. been a lot better in in my opinion at least. Yeah, completely agree with you. And like even narratively, you can imagine. Um, I really loved the characterization difference between P zero five and um, Leshy. Leshy was all about the atmosphere and the game, and he pulled out, like, decorations and masks when you'd fought a different boss. <laughs> and uh, P05 was like, that's dumb. Uh, check out these cool mechanics I came up with. Look, you can have five different columns instead of just four different columns. And very much <laughs> like the min-maxer power gamer you were playing against. I mean, I could totally see, like... Um, P05 being like, oh yeah, there's a bunch of enemies here, but they're uh, they're they're really dumb, and I'm just going to skip them for you so you can go right to the boss. Yeah, actually, and that would be like narratively satisfying too. Um, mm-hmm. P03, by the way. 3-5. <laughs> Whatever. Anyway, um, no, I, I agree with you, and that would be like right on point in terms of like his perspective on the game. And I didn't think about this now, but you do, you know, especially even the way that all of the different scribes treat their playing with you, right? Like P03 is all business, all about the mechanics. He's like the the rules lawyer of Dungeon Masters, whereas <laughs> Leshy's, Leshy's crafting an experience for you. He just wants to take you along for the ride. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I guess maybe it's no, um, you know, maybe different things resonate with different people, but like I found the Leshy style of play much more fun. <laughs> I don't think you're the only one too and I think it's really interesting like um the change in perspective that you get Leshy's at the beginning he's like trying to kill you and you're like oh man horror everywhere this is fi-. you almost get nostalgic for it after you go through P03's holographic uh wasteland you're like you know I could use a good boss fight like the old school where you you throw the decorations down, you play the music, you drag the pick across the floor. <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe that's like what this game is actually trying to say is like you need to be able to connect with the style of play within the game that you're you're talking to and different players like different things. Like I'm sure there are people for whom the increased mechanical options of say act 2 resonated with them more or um the meta narrative aspects of Act Three and the high stakes battles that would cause you to lose all of your, you know, marbles or whatever, um, in Act Three resonated. And you know, maybe that's like part of the game's message: is like t- testing out a bunch of different player archetypes and play styles, and letting the player come to their own conclusions about what they like best. I'm not going to say I'm disagreeing with you, but I have seen. Um interviews with Daniel Mullins online where he's talking about Act 3 and he's glad that players were hating on P03 so much because of the (laughs) difference between him and Leshy. So I think it was more a characterization choice where he tried to make this guy like the hated character and did a good job at it. I was going to say, I mean, we both came to the same conclusion there. So I, 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 I guess mission accomplished, at least for the cohort of you and me. Uh, and it sounds like a lot of the internet as well. <laughs> but no, I, I think that's fair. And, you know, there's a lot to hate about the rules lawyering asshole. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there always is. Yeah. So uh, I think that's that's good. And I think with that, maybe we could talk about sort of the, the overall ending and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and close this out. 
So Act 3 had a good escape room. I did like that it returned to the Act 1 thing there. And you go through P03's abandoned factory, just like you went through Leshy's uh, cabin in the woods before. You solve some puzzles, you unlock some new things, um, and you eventually unlock, you find the other three scribes who are plotting to stop uh, P03 from taking over the world. Yeah, that's right. So you, you form an alliance with your former nemeses, one specific nemesis, but then the other two that are sort of eh, sort of antagonistic to you. And um, eventually you are able to confront P03, and it turns out that he is just about to uh, perform the Great Transcendence and upload the game to Steam <laughs> in the, the, meta, the meta sense. <laughs> and uh, you're able to stop him, but... Instead of resetting everything and letting the game going on to exist, there is a, a twist. Uh, and Grimora, the scribe of death, decides that... Slash it would, stink bug. Slash stink bug, yes. Decides that it would be better if this floppy was just deleted. Kind of important with the metagame there. This is something very heavily hinted at with the Luke Carter stories in between and some of the ARG that's going on. Um, and relates to the kind of creepypasta meta-narrative, but on the disc inscription, there is an ancient evil, uh, something older than floppy disks, even. Um, but it's something that persists, and by deleting the, the game inscription, deleting the disc, uh, Grimoire is also deleting the ancient evil. Right. Uh, as I understand it, this is like ancient Nazi technology, like uh, the code for a German game card, Karnoffel, I think. I, I'm I'm just going off wiki knowledge here. I don't have actually insight into this because it's a bit Baroque for me. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but to your point, Josh, there's something old and, and bad on this floppy, and it needs to be taken care of, and Grimora is doing her best to rid the world of it. And through that, you get a really touching scene where you are going through and playing each of the scribes' sort of preferred mechanics against them, and at the end of it, they all reach out to shake your hand as the world around them is slowly being deleted. Yeah, like, um, it kind of implies that in the game world, there would have been a fun 3D battle system for Grimora and for, um... Magnificus. Magnifs yeah, the magic dude um, as well. You get to a little taste of those, although the battles are always cut short. Um, but then also, I think the moment where you fight Leshy again, and you've gone through P03's soulless holographic battlefield, and you get back to Leshy's woodlands, and you, it feels like a little bit of a homecoming. And the moment where, you know, everything's being deleted, but he reaches across the table to shake your head, hand. A um, little bit of a unexpected tearjerker, you know what I mean? It is, especially because, like, at that point, the scales disappear. And he says, oh, it's okay. The, the outcome doesn't matter. We just want to keep playing. And mm -hmm. it sort of echoes, like, the end of Undertale to me a little bit, right? Like the sadness that the antagonist of that game felt about you finally ending the cycle and them not being able to play anymore. And, you know, all good things must come to an end. I guess that's part of what this game is saying as well. But 
Um, it also sort of echoes like every good game you play against an opponent in, in cards or a board game or whatever also comes to an end. And at the end of the day, one of you wins, you stand up, you shake hands, you go on your way. You had a good time. That's the point. Mm-hmm. I think a part of the emotional impact of the of that scene too is you know mentioned it before but the change in your perspective on act one because you're like um i don't know take another horror game take any of your resident evils sure sure like imagine you played a third of that game and then at the end you were like oh you know that was like a warm cozy by the fire sort of thing (laughs) as a matter of fact like it's just such a position change yeah. Uh, very impressive for a game to have pulled that off. Yeah, in, in about a dozen hours, too. Like, basically, you go from fully dreading what's going on in that cabin and, you know, treating Leshy as this bloodthirsty fiend who's after, you know, your ever-living soul into, like, this is my comrade against whom I've played many games, and I'm sad to hmm. see him go. I wonder if part of that is from the more kind of freewheeling game balance they do, too. Like, they tell you Leshy cheats, so you're like, ah, oh, he cheats, I want to cheat back. You find a way to break <laughs> the game, which there are there are options available to you there. Um, and it's like you kind of get your, you know, you settle the score there. Um, it's a little bit different than the standard horror feel where you don't have that... Um, you don't have that ability to become uber-powerful against the horror antagonist. Well, yes and no. I think it's interesting to me about the difference between the way that Leshy and P-03 react when you beat them. P-03 is petulant and angry about you being able to best them till the end. Leshy is almost con- congratulatory at the end of Act 1. You know, he's hmm. surprised and, and sort of like impressed that you were able to like turn the tide in 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 his face so to speak and at the end of the game yeah he's respect at the end of the game it is respect that you feel when you're having that final conversation with him uh so with that let's show our hands and Give Inscription a three-word review. All right. My three-word review for Inscription is Fire, Embers, Ash. Inscription grabbed me immediately. The small numbers card game offered tight and legible gameplay, while the roguelike structure gave each run a wonderful variety. The dash of horror provided the right amount of atmosphere for the escape room and narrative. Act 1 was fire, addicting, engaging, and wonderful. Act 2 expanded on the core mechanics of the card battles. The roguelike deck sculptor became a true deck builder as you met three more scribes and explored their unique deck mechanics. This took some time to come into its own, but by the end I was enjoying watching the deck mechanics play off of each other. Mechanics-wise, it felt like a natural continuation of Act 1. Act 2 was embers, slow-burning and warm. 
Act 3, unfortunately, kept the structure of Act 2 without its cross-scribe deck building. It felt like a rehash of Act 2 without the pull of new mechanics to learn. It was too long for just focusing on the robot deck. Act 3 should have been half as short, or Return to the Slay the Spire structure of Act 1. It continued a good plot, but that and the new escape room were not enough to save it. It was ash, lifeless, cold, and not very tasty. My three-word review is A Gimmick Transcendence. A long time ago, we did Daniel Mullen's previous title, Pony Island, for a non-recorded video game book club. And if I recall, my main takeaway was that while it was fun and had a great deal of variety in its mechanics, they boiled down to little more than gimmicks. Our three-word review, if I recall correctly, was Bag of Gimmicks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if I uh, do say so myself, these are harsh words for someone who is clearly a talented video game developer like Daniel Mullins. <laughs> Inscription, however, takes the for lack of a better word, gimmicks of Pony Island, fourth wall breaking, haunted games, a variety of mechanical and aesthetic implementations within a single title to create something that is in service of a larger purpose, both mechanically and narratively. And the way Inscription uses its very mechanical, aesthetic, and tonal choices completely transcends the sum of its constituent parts to become something truly special. And it's one of my favorite games of the year because of it. And with that, I want to say thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to share it with folks you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at pixelplaypod. And for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. Take care and keep on gaming. This game is definitely one of my top 10 of the year, and I'm a two thumbs way up on this game because Act 1 was so good. Yeah, I, I, I agree. You know, like if I'm looking back at the experience on the whole, it's definitely one of my favorite games of the year. I agree there were parts where it dragged, and I think the main um, culprit of that is Act 3, in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. I, I agree completely with your, your three word that, that that act was too long by half. But, you know, as we said earlier in the cast, like the boss battles were still really transcendent during it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, the boss battles, I feel like the boss battles were the point of act three. Uh, the b- boss battles and the plot, things very sh- much shifted over to the plot. Uh, like, Almost all the cards you got in Act 3 were available to you in Act 2. And sure, maybe you didn't specialize in them as much. Um, it's Yeah, the structure wasn't as compelling as it was in Act 1. Uh, not because of the personalities, Leshy versus P03, but the how, how like the room-to-room thing happened. And you died, you just got sent back. So you didn't have the same like progression that would accumulate until you died. Um, it was, it was lacking that roguelike goodness. Yeah, and I think, you know, weirdly to me, like I, I mentioned the the phrase "souls like" earlier in this, and you know, 
it does like point out a weakness in that structure, that mechanical structure that is inherent to a lot of souls likes, souls pretenders maybe. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I totally hear you that it it begins to feel road. I don't I don't think Act Three for that reason works as well as the other two. Um, mm-hmm. Although I, I'm not even that huge of a fan of two if i'm thinking about it like i liked what it did i liked the aesthetic and i liked what it did for building out the overall world but the mechanical aspect didn't really connect with me because i'm not like a pull out my album of cards and build a deck person i like (laughs) roguelike deck builders i don't like deck builders and there is weirdly (laughs) enough a big distinction there no it's totally the um like in a roguelike deck builder you can't just remove a card from your deck. It's like a mechanical event when you're able to do that. Um, so it's it really is like a, they're going to start you off with something workable and it's up to you to make it workable for longer. Whereas with a, um, you know, where you have any traditional possible, deck builder, yeah. Yeah, like a Magic the Gathering sort of thing. Well, you need a deeper understanding of the systems in order to build a good deck in the first place. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. What it boils down to is like, I guess to me it's accessibility. Like roguelike deck builders will atomize the decision-making process for um, building a deck and be being successful in a run to the point where moment to moment I can make the best strategic decision to get me through the game. Whereas you can screw yourself over for you know 20 turns down the line at the start of a traditional deck builder where you have major choices up front and there's no going back it just requires a lot more understanding of the play space and it's less accessible to me because of that because i don't have the time to commit to learn every single card in an album no absolutely like um when you start with a roguelike, you a roguelike deck builder, you assume the deck you have is workable. Whereas if you just pick random cards from a deck, which you more or less are doing until you understand the mechanics, um, it's not necessarily workable. So it's like it's accessibility, like you say. Like um, I never thought that like the roguelike structure would make it more accessible, but hey, here we go. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And I, you know, they both bring certain things. Like, there are games where I like having, like, an exhaustive knowledge of it. Um, but, you know, it, it takes a certain type of game for that. And maybe there's less of those types of games out there now than there were before, given the time that I have to give to them. Parenting is rough. Yeah, amen. <laughs> Well, you know, um, speaking of mastery, one of my favorite memes from this game is the eight fucking grizzly bears. <laughs> yeah, the bear rush. I love that. Mm-hmm. So what happens with this game is if you're doing too well at the very beginning um, and you might actually win, what happens is that Leshy summons eight grizzly bears on the battlefield. Uh, these guys are badass motherfuckers who will just tear across anything you put in front of them. Yeah, 4-4 four, um, four cards, which is big. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a small numbers game where, like, you're, at that point, your highest attack is, like, a 3-2 card. Mm-hmm. So I think it was, uh, 
I've seen some funny memes come out of uh, the fandom for this game because of that. Yeah, I mean, it, it is definitely like a oh shit moment, and I think it, it definitely underscores like that this game doesn't want you to succeed on the first time through, which is pretty apparent, I think, up front. However, I do love one particular thing that came out of this, which is Waypoint.com's coverage of this game. Uh, the two reporters that took on playing this game live on stream uh, for coverage purposes actually beat the bear wave <laughs> really <laughs> yeah so that's natalie watson and rob zachney rob zachney is like a famous strategy not famous but he is a well-known strategy game critic um so he's he's got some strategy chops and natalie watson is a uh, young up-and-coming video game journalist who is very familiar with magic the gathering so this is like a perfect duo to like fuck this game up <laughs> so oh, get on them for beating the bear wave yeah i'll see if i could find that uh video on demand and, and link it in the show notes but i thought it was pretty cool <laughs>